Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and uh, yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, we have a really important show for you today. Um, definitely take a listen, um, give some thought to it, think out some action of what you can do because your involvement, no matter where you live, is needed. Um, it is an example of legislation that is happening across the country in different state houses. Uh, that this is a multi-pronged attack. Um, so your involvement, whether it's happening in your state or not, is important. Um, last week we had a fun show with uh, Corinda Dobbins, a great uh, new LGBTQ talent on the scene. Um, check out the L.A. Blade magazine. There is an article that I wrote about her and from our conversation from that show. Uh, but uh, that, that was fun, and um, she was hugely entertaining, and her work is entertaining Today we get serious um, because LGBTQ kids are under attack. Our main focus today is going to be about two heinous bills that are in progress in Florida. We'll find out what the prospects of are of them actually becoming law um, and what to do about it if they do. Uh, one is a don't say gay bill. Um, this is one of the of a cookie cutter type of bill that is is again cropping up in different states where uh, the legislature is trying to prevent teachers from even acknowledging that LGBTQ people exist um, to make them unfriendly or not a resource for kids who are grappling with their identity, Um, certainly not to tell classrooms about LGBTQ people or gender identity Um, or any other thing having to do with that. Um, It is completely oppressive and horrible, and there are lots of negative ramifications to it, which we will be discussing. The second bill is another anti-LGBTQ bill in Florida. This one is one that essentially is a book-banning bill. It is one that puts lists of books out for the purview of anti-LGBTQ parents who can then uh, pick and choose the ones that they don't want to even be available on the shelves of schools and uh, mandate that that happened. So again, another way to oppress any discussion, um, any affirming uh, outreaches that schools really need to do. And in many cases, these are life-saving issues uh, for LGBTQ kids in school and um, those around them. So anyway, we are going to deconstruct these bills uh, with the help of our very, very good friend and uh, one of my favorite people on the planet, Brandon Wolf, is joining us. Brandon is Press Secretary of Equality Florida. We have had him on the show many times. Uh, You may remember him. He is a survivor of the Pulse shooting, and he told us his um, really tragic and and horrible experience 
surviving that. And survive it, he has. He has gone on to be a huge activist in many important ways against gun violence, um, for LGBTQ rights, uh, just you name it. Um, he has been there. He's a true hero. And it's going to be really great to welcome him back on the show today. Um, before we get to Brandon, I want to go straight to my co-host, the editor of the L.A. Blade magazine, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Hello to all of our listeners out there. We really appreciate uh, you subscribing to our podcast and listening to us. Um, We had a thing that really is going to be critically important for uh, the LGBTQ community in the United States going forward, um, particularly with the makeup uh, of the current United States Supreme Court. Today, Associate Supreme Court Justice um, Stephen Breyer, uh, standing alongside President Joe Biden at the White House, formally announced his retirement at the end of his term um, with the high court. Uh, The news of Breyer's uh, decision to retire was uh, actually broken yesterday by uh, NBC News uh, Justice Correspondent Pete Williams. Uh, but today, the justice himself, the president, uh, Biden, uh, went in front of the cameras. Uh, he spoke a little bit uh, about uh, his experience on the court, and uh, he talked a little bit about what he was looking for moving forward. Uh, justice Breyer will stay, he said, until the uh, nomination uh, process is over with. Uh, so he's not going to leave the court until his replacement is ready to essentially step into his chair. Um, although that's not the first time that's happened on the high court recently, uh, you know, it's been uh, one of those scenarios where uh, they announce their retirement, they retire, and then in the meantime, the fighting goes back and forth on Capitol Hill for their replacement. However, in the last two instances, especially with the death of uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, during the Trump administration, uh, Trump, along with the Senate Majority Leader, was able to ramp through um, a justice. We also had the situation where there was a death earlier was uh, Justice Scalia. And again, another justice was uh, put forward uh, because the Republicans have blocked President Obama from his nomination. So Trump was able to put two conservatives uh, on the court, which radically altered the makeup of the court. Um, to a 6-3 majority. With Justice Breyer leaving and a replacement, it still leaves the court uh, as a 6-3, but at least there'll be some semblance uh, there in terms of a progressive voice on the court um, between Justice Kagan, the new justice, and Justice Sotomayor. Uh, Justice uh, Breyer Breyer today in his remarks at the White House said, I want you to pick up on justice. It's an experiment that's still going on. They'll determine whether the experiment still works. I'm an optimist, and I'm pretty sure it will, she said uh, earlier today. You're going to ask that. Plus, uh, well, no, I'm just going to make the point that um, Breyer was going to be retiring in the next few years anyway if, you know, God, you know, God bless his health, but, that maintains and and he's alive because he is he's kind of up there, 
But um, this is the time that his retirement can um, actually have him filled with somebody who is like-minded. Um, in the next few years, if the Democrats don't aren't successful in the midterms and the Republicans have control of the Senate, then you know we know them. They're going to stall any any vacancy until they get a Democratic or a Republican president in there. Um, you know, so it it is a timely time for him to retire so that his legacy can be continued. Um, there has been criticism of Ruth Bader Ginsburg for holding on so long past the point where um, she could be replaced by somebody who was more like-minded to her. And um, I think that that was a lesson learned. Although uh, my big question, though, is will this be successful? Because the Republicans are masters at gumming up the system and blocking things. And my understanding is that this is not clear sailing, even with the, well, the Democrats having a razor-thin majority. Actually, uh, it's interesting because the Republicans themselves kind of greased the rails by making rules changes during the Trump era in order to get Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Amy uh, Comey Barrett onto the court. And they changed the rules to on the Supreme Court uh, to a simple majority. Right now, the way it stands, unless uh, unless Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin block uh, whoever the Democrats end up putting forward, um, then it'll be a tiebreaker vote. It's fairly certain that there will be opposition from the Republicans, but with Vice President Harris as the deciding factor, uh, Biden should be able to get his nomination to the Senate. And that, again, is courtesy of the Republicans because they're the ones that actually changed the rules to a simple majority. So they're not going to be able to filibuster or block this one. Um, Of course, the wild cards, obviously, are going to be, um, once we clear the the Senate Judiciary Committee is whether or not, um, you know, Manchin and Sinema, who turned out to be kind of uh, hanging nails, if you will, of the U.S. Senate in terms of the president's agenda, uh, would block this going forward. Um, then, of course, there's also the fact that there will could very well be Republicans that will come over and vote for whoever the nominee is. Um, the main thrust is getting the White House uh, and the president to basically keep his campaign practice, uh, promise, not practice, uh, to nominate a black uh, female jurist uh, to the open seat. Right. Um, right. So that's the big there, push there right is, now. Yeah, there is an obstacle, though, with the Judicial Committee because um, Schumer made an agreement with McConnell that uh, – the duties of the Judicial Committee were going to be split 50-50, which means that, and so that committee is 50% Democrat, 50% Republican. And if they have a stalemate, that could be a problem getting the nominee out to the Senate itself. Well, according to, and of course we've reached out to the Senate parliamentarian, that may not be that big of an obstacle, depending upon some rather other good. arcane Senate rules. So uh, okay, we have reached out to 
We've reached out to the Senate parliamentarian for, you know, a more clear-cut definition of that. Um, it is terribly important, however, to get this done before November um, because the way that the numbers are stacking up now, uh, the Republicans probably will retake the Hill, and that's become very problematic. The Senate has, o- has always been problematic with its current makeup because you've got an even split. Um, the House, there's only, I think, a seven- or eight-seat majority, and with Republican gerrymandering and some other issues that have gone along with that, uh, there is, unfortunately, you know, a, an open possibility uh, that the House will go uh, Republican. However, in this particular instance, when we're talking about the Supreme Court, that's irrelevant because that process is strictly right. uh, the probing of the Senate and, of course, obviously the White House. Yeah. I, I'm, I am firmly in the camp of not um, necessarily believing that what, what is now will be in 10 months. Um, so I'm hoping everybody listening gets very active to not have that scenario take place, um, which is exactly what happened when Biden ran against uh, Trump. We had many more voters than had voted before, and they made the difference, which um, pissed the old guy off. But uh, that, that is what happened. And so um, I'm, 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 I, I would take this as a call to action for those who are interested. Get involved. Get active. And um, we've got to fight in these midterms like we've never fought before. Um, so that's, that's, that's my two cents on that. Um, with that, I want to turn this over to state legislature and the fights that are happening uh, across the country. But today we are focusing in primarily on the, one of the most eastern states, um, Florida. And our good friend Brandon, welcome, Brandon. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I was just apologizing to Brody that uh, I was a little late jumping on at the beginning of your show because all hell just broke loose in the Florida House around an abortion ban. So apologies for my delay. Oh, geez. Well, tell us about that. What's going on? Well, as you noted at the beginning of the show, um, you know, I know we want to talk about a couple of bills. Um, I'll just let folks know listening that Equality Florida is monitoring actually over 100 bills that are anti-LGBT in nature. And, um, you know, it's it's an entire legislative slate. It's an entire agenda that is designed to help Ron DeSantis run to the right of Donald Trump to lock up a 2024 presidential nomination. And the impact is that it gives the DeSantis administration license to police people in every area of their lives, whether that's a classroom, a workplace, or, you know, a doctor's office, or even just how you control your own body. So uh, this afternoon, the 15-week abortion ban with no exception for rape and incest uh, went to the House Subcommittee on Health Appropriations. Uh, They were going through their normal process. They opened up debate to the public They apparently didn't like that there were so many people there ready to debate uh, and ask questions about the bill. And so GOP leadership shut down the committee, removed the public from the room, locked the doors, and restarted the committee hearing without them, uh, which resulted in, I think now there are dozens of students who came all the way to Tallahassee in the panhandle to testify. I believe those dozens of students are now protesting outside the building. Wow. Wow. 
what what is the mood like in Florida uh, with all this going on? I mean, obviously there's going to be a, a, a large per- or percentage that are just all for it, but th- this has got to be freaking out people who have any kind of sensibility for freedom and um, just self-determination. Yeah, you know, it's a conversation we had at the beginning of legislative session. So to catch people up, if you're listening and, you know, maybe politics are like sort of a hobby or, or you're not totally dialed in, uh, most states have a part-time legislature. I think California is full-time, which is nice for you. Um, in Florida, our legislature only works for 60 days a year. They only go to Tallahassee for two months to make laws, uh, and then they come home to their districts. So we're in the midst of legislative session right now, that 60-day period where lawmakers, you know, put bills through the process and, and turn them into law. Um, and I can tell you that the climate is one of disbelief, of dismay, of, uh, of fury, of frustration, because, you know, we have a governor and a Republican Party here in Florida that like to talk about this state being free. They always say the free state of Florida. But what they don't tell you is that it's only free for whom they decide to do what they decide and when they decide. And that's how they're legislating. Uh, remember that Ron DeSantis, that race came down to a recount against Andrew Gillum. He won by a very, very narrow margin in Florida, but he's governing as if he was crowned king. Uh, he's absolutely assaulting the rights and freedoms of the marginalized across the state. Uh, and you're right, it is freaking people out, um, but I think it's also galvanizing us. It's giving us something to mobilize around. Yeah, no, that, I mean, glad, I'm glad it is, is galvanizing people, and I'm glad you are who you are and where you are because you are you're an outstanding leader in the cause. So, oh, you know, thank you. That, Happy that's to do excellent. it. Oh, yeah, well, you're – like I said at the top of the show, you're one of my favorite people on the planet. So, you know, you you can do no wrong in my book. And and you do a lot Thank of you. right. You do a lot of brave, right, important things. Um, Brandon, let's go to the two bills that we're talking about today. Um, the first is the Don't Say Gay bill. Uh, what mm-hmm. is that about and um, what are its prospects? So this is a bit of a Frankenstein's monster of other anti-LGBTQ bills that have moved through other states. Uh, they used to be called no promo homo bills. There were uh, several of those, I think, uh, in the 2011 to 14 range. Uh, they popped up again under the Don't Say Gay moniker in 2020. Um, and essentially the bill would does a number of, of horrifying things, but the part that people have zeroed in on is the part that says school districts may not, quote, encourage discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in primary grades or in a way that is not age appropriate. Um, And so, you know, there, there are a number of things that are disturbing about the bill, not the least of which is that it's grounded in the same kind of bigotry that people have used to justify discrimination and violence against us forever. And that's this assertion that, LGBTQ people simply by existing are inappropriate, that we're not appropriate for some eyes, that, you know, just our existence on earth is some sort of a perversion. That's the same homophobia and transphobia that's been used since the dawn of time to justify, as I said, discrimination and violence against us. And it's at the core of this bill. Um, And then, you know, the other, I would say, disturbing part is, is that the bill is quite vague. 
So it doesn't explain what encouragement looks like, and that begs the question. Does that mean that Orange County schools in Orlando can't encourage conversation about what happened at Pulse in our own backyard? Because that would require right. you to talk about the sexual orientation and gender identity of people most impacted. You could even go so far as to ask, does that mean that, that school boards can no longer encourage Women's History Month discussions, right? Because being a woman is a gender identity. Um, the bill is sloppily written. It is incredibly vague and broad, and it's something they've copy and pasted from some right-wing think tank uh, with anti-LGBTQ animus because they're just looking to whip up culture war fervor to help build an on-ramp for the governor for his presidential ambitions. Yeah, right. and I saw you were quoted in Slate magazine um, talking about women's, uh, women's history um, and that 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 would fall into that, which is ridiculous. Um, it also is very reminiscent of the um, legislation in Russia, which I would think we would want to differentiate ourselves from significantly, but you know, there, there you have it. I, I have to tell you on a personal note, I look at this bill and it, I really scratch my head on how certain things are going to be treated because um, yeah. I had my sons, um, my partner and I at the time, um, adopted two little boys. They were, they were babies, and we, you know, they went to preschool and everything else. When they went to preschool, they had two gay dads, and yeah. that was our family. And they appeared in school, and the kids around them were not oblivious to that was what our family was. And mm-hmm. this kind of bill makes me fear for not only kids who are LGBTQ and at a young age, especially where we've seen a lot of kids and their gender identity, um, they hit um, some of those things. They're four or five years old when they know who they are and they, they have real challenges even at that age. But even, you know, for LGBTQ families, how, you know, are they, are they supposed to be erased? Are they, you know, what, what is the um, parent night going to be like with the kids around? And um, are those parents going to be told that they legally cannot claim their spouse in the room? That, that's, it just seems incredibly horrific. Um, that's, yeah. You know, and I appreciate you sort of laying out the, the impacts, right? Because that's, that's at the crux of what we're talking about. And, you know, if we're being honest with one another, Governor DeSantis does not care about these kids or their families. He doesn't care about these classroom environments. GOP leaders do not care what happens in these classrooms. They are looking to turn them into political battlegrounds. They are cynical politicians who desperately want to win elections down the road, and this is their path forward, and so they've decided to carve it here. But just because they have selfish ambitions and intent doesn't mean that these bills don't impact real people. And the questions you're raising are the ones that all of us have, right? To what degree will school districts be considered encouraging conversations? Does it mean that, you know, your son going to school would have, in, you know, caused the school district to encourage people to have conversations about your family? Does it mean that an LGBTQ teacher putting a picture of their partner on the desk suddenly encourages a discussion of sexual orientation in the classroom. 
Um, you know, does it mean that a, a trans teacher simply existing in the school district system is an encouragement of having discussions about gender identity and sexual orientation? And I'll tell you what the effect will be, and it's the desired effect. The effect will be that school districts are terrified. They do not want to risk legal action because they're already strapped for cash by a state government mm-hmm. that wants to defund them at every turn. And so they pull back from creating inclusive school environments. They pull back from creating spaces where LGBTQ people feel welcome and safe simply because they don't want to risk a lawsuit. And we know what the impacts of that are. We know what the impacts of that are on on LGBTQ kids who are four times as likely as their peers to attempt suicide by the time they graduate high school. We know what the impacts of that are on teachers who are LGBTQ when we already have a shortage of them We can't get enough teachers in the classroom. So though these bills are birthed from a self-aggrandizing space for these politicians, they have real impacts on real people, and they're people who need our support right now, not our demonization. Right, exactly. Brandon, talk to us about the other bill that that is raising its ugly head. Uh, That's SB 1300 that uh, is essentially a book banning bill. I appreciate that. And I'm going to try to sneak in a third bill uh, under the wire here. Um, but the second bill you're talking you, you about. You are allowed. Is SB- <laughs> because I, want, I think there's another one that's really important we should talk about. Um, the second bill you're talking about is SB 1300. And uh, first of all, the original bill had nothing to do with book banning. It had nothing to do with curriculum in that nature. It actually was a bill to defund school boards. So the original intent of the bill was to make school board pay look a lot like other lawmaker pay around the state. There was a a bill that was proposed that would actually make all school boards in Florida volunteer. Um, And that was the original conversation that was happening around SB 1300. Well, the Senate uh, sponsor amended the bill to add on this component that essentially gives a blanket license to censor resources, literature in libraries and in schools across the state of Florida. Now, it's important to note that the argument they make is, well, don't we want parents to be able to know what their children are reading and have a say in that? And the answer is yes, of course. Any reasonable person wants a parent to be involved in their kid's education, 100%. But we already have processes in place in Florida for, te- for, for parents, excuse me, to, to go and contest things that are in the library or a part of the curriculum with the school board. And the school board convenes a committee and they go through a process. The superintendent makes a decision. Parents can, can then go and appeal that decision to the entire school board. There is a process that allows everyone's voice to be at the table, not simply a mob of people who show up to a school board meeting shrieking their heads off because the presence of LGBTQ people makes them uncomfortable. So this is totally unnecessary, unrelated to the bill. And our job as the folks who are funding schools and libraries should be to fill them with the kind of things that cause kids to learn more about the world around them and, and you know, cause them to have wonder about all of the, the parts of our society. Our job should not be to use state funding to censor and ban books. Uh, And, you know, so the answer from Equality Florida's perspective, at least, is 
Let's trust the process we already have and stop using state dollars to rip books off the shelves. Yeah, definitely. And then what was the, the, the third, book, uh, third bill that you, you went? Um, yeah, off? I appreciate you letting me uh, get in a third bill here, and it really is important. This bill is what we're calling the License to Discriminate in Healthcare Bill, and we've seen these sorts of bills pop up all over but I'm flagging it uh, for you because it's moving in the legislature. Uh, it's already been through hearings and passed through those hearings. And the bill is pretty simple. The bill says that any health care provider, so that doesn't just mean doctors, it means mental health professionals, et cetera, any health care provider or health insurer can deny a procedure or some type of care if they have a moral or ethical uh, objection to the procedure or the person asking for it. And oh, good Lord. I, I, and I, I know that exactly our response. You know, I don't need to tell you how dangerous that is. And I'll illustrate um, how dangerous it is by sharing something that happened in the hearing. We have some yeah. incredible champions on these committees and uh, representative Carlos Guillermo Smith was a part of, of this first committee for the license to discriminate bill. And he asked a, a poignant question. He said, so there are people in this world who believe that contracting HIV is divine retribution for a particular, quote, lifestyle. Does this bill mean that a doctor would be able to welcome someone living with HIV in the door, identify their status as they go through their check-in, and deny them a prescription or some sort of care that they need that's totally unrelated, by the way, to their HIV status, simply because they have a moral objection to treating someone with HIV? And the answer from the bill sponsor was yes, that that person would need to go find another health care provider. It is grotesque. It is wow. egregious. It is deeply bigoted and dangerous. And unfortunately, it's one of the litany of these bills we're talking about that is moving through the legislature. I, I am I am so stunned. Not not that these bills exist because you know any bill can exist, but I cannot fathom the soul of the people behind me. I just yeah. do not get it. It's like these these are the type of people that I look at and I see them as completely and utterly immoral. And 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 then baffled because obviously they see themselves as super moral, but it just is is beyond to me uh, on, on so many so many levels. Um, it, you know, it's it's so, sad. Uh, it's sad and it's unconscionable because once again the politicians who put their names on these bills, the the guy who who sponsored this bill, I don't think he actually cares. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he hadn't read the bill before he stood up and tried to defend it. He sounded like he'd never read it before. Um, and that, to me, is what makes this so deeply disturbing because, again, these bills have real consequences, real impacts on real people who need us. Florida leads the country in new HIV transmissions. Miami and Orlando are in the top five cities for new HIV transmissions. And the idea that we would give healthcare providers a blanket right to discriminate against those folks. And, oh, by the way, don't forget I said health insurers. Let's not kid ourselves. 
There is not a health insurance company on the planet that has morals or ethics. They are after one thing and one thing only, and that is profit. And that means while they don't have morals or ethics, they most certainly are looking for any excuse not to pay for your care. And this bill would give them a blanket license to say anything under the sun is morally objectionable, and we're not going to pay for it. Yeah, and actually that's a huge, huge point because um, HIV medication is hugely expensive. And to your point, I can't think of a single health care insurer who would not like to get a get-out-of-jail-free card and not have to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. yeah, that's, that's huge. Uh, Brandon, the tell, about tell us the prognosis. Of, Brandon. Go ahead, Brody. Um, yeah, the thing about me about this is we're, we're consistently seeing, you know, this pattern. And what the Republicans have done, and, and we're seeing it besides Florida, but we're seeing it in Texas, uh, and we're seeing it in Virginia now with this new Republican governor, and basically we're seeing it in Tennessee and other places, is they've latched onto this idea that if we can't get them one way and the courts are going to back up their rights, then we'll attack this. Uh, at a macro-micro level of parental rights and religious liberties and freedoms. And that's what they're doing. They, they decided to repackage this animus and this hatred into a more palatable package of, oh, here, look at this. We're just protecting parents' rights. We're just protecting religious freedoms, uh, both of which are misnomers. And, of course, the other thing that concerns me about this is we have a 6-3 split on the high court and we have circuit courts that are already problematic. You guys are in the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit has a horrible track record, okay, with yeah. LGBT equality. And the court next to it, the 5th Circuit Court, yeah, that's not much better. Um, so what I'm looking at is this, is that it's got to have to kind of come down to how much proactive people are willing to be to engage in these things. You know, it, it's gotten to the point where, and, and I really don't care what the president says, I think he's blind to this. The division is there. The division is real. And it's, you know, one of these sudden winner-take-all situations. But politically, that's exactly what this comes down to. Um, I have virtually no respect at all whatsoever for Florida's governor. Um, you know, it, he, you're not alone in that, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah well, I, I, I think mean, lack of respect is sort of an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> I'm only well, halfway through a cocktail, so I will reserve myself from getting fired tonight. But uh, let's just say you're not well, alone in that. <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, it, we saw, you know, the real evidence of his animus towards the community uh, with the actions he took on the very first day of Pride last summer uh, in Florida, and that onerous, onerous, onerous anti-trans building side, that was intentional. So mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, looking at these things and, and looking at what he's doing, um, and to Rob's point, I, 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 don't, I don't think they have any morals at all whatsoever. I mean, I, I personally think that, you know, they're in it for what they're in it for, and and, and that's just it. And they think that eventually they can swing public opinion that way. And, you know, they, they have taken, they're basically all a bunch of Karens on steroids, except for the fact they're elected officials. Um, well, and let's, 
And, and I yeah, appreciate you mentioning, you know, the, the sort of like end game of, of hoping that public opinion swings toward them. I actually don't think they believe that either. And I think that's where the voter suppression measures come in is an acknowledgement that the things they're doing aren't actually popular at all. And if they ran simply on, you know, we want to take books off the shelves and stop people from being able to access their doctor and stop teachers from being able to teach about LGBTQ people, they would probably lose the popular vote. And so you add in these sort of voter suppression measures to try to, you know, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but to try to make their base one chunk of people, right, uh, and consolidate that. Um, I think that's an acknowledgement that they know that, that they're not running on policies that are popular. They're not doing things that people put them there to do. Let me, let me just remind folks who are listening, if you're not keyed into the things that are happening in Florida, you might be thinking, well, is this what constituents want? Is this what they're asking for from their elected officials? And the answer is no. The things that people really want to talk about, Florida leads the nation in increases in housing prices in 2021. Rent went up on an average of 29% from the beginning of 2021 to the end. People can't afford to live here right now. And the legislature could be talking about things like that. They could be addressing those crises, but instead they're singularly focused on launching themselves to their next political destination, and it's led by Governor DeSantis, who just really wants to be on the ticket and wants to outflank Donald Trump to the right. It is disgraceful because they could be doing so much good for the people of Florida, and I just can't imagine taking that job and going up to Tallahassee for 60 days and telling myself I'm going to do everything but what people who elected me sent me here to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, Brody, you had a couple of other news items that we, we wanted to save for when we had Brandon on um, about other things in state legislatures. What What's going on there? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, and in, in it, it mirrors to some degree what's going on in Florida. And, and Brandon, who's got uh, a Florida-specific portfolio as press secretary for the organization Equality Florida um, has the ability to also look at as well, and I'll let him comment on this because yeah, that's all part and parcel of doing what he does. You know, let's let's take a quick look at some of the other things that are going on. Um, in Virginia, we had a situation where they tried to run through two more bills, and we have an anti-trans governor. Now, the Virginia Senate is still in Democratic hands, so they were able to beat back these two measures, but they all revolved around the parental rights issue. We saw this first happen in Virginia in Loudoun County during a rather contentious school board meeting uh, over uh, a state edict that went out and a mandate from the state uh, requiring that the school boards be more inclusive. Well, the anti-trans crowd jumped right on that and said, oh, no, we're not doing it. We're not going to respect the trans person's gender identity. It went even further when a physical education uh, coach by the name of Tanner Cross said, no, not happening. He was suspended, and ultimately a court forced him back uh, into his teaching job over the objections of the school. Well, the current governor, who was just elected, uh, backed this guy. And, and it's a matter of identity. 
Brandon kind of referred to it um, when he was talking about this issue, especially with, you know, Governor DeSantis and his attitude. You know, it is more than just an erasure. It's let us find another more creative means by which we can do this. Let's jump across the country to Austin and to Governor Abbott and the Texas State House. Texas last year led the nation in anti-trans bills. I mean, it was just a plethora of these things. And, of course, Texas was also the one that wrote the anti-abortion bill that is currently, you know, being debated back and forth uh, that, along with the Mississippi bill, may actually undo Roe v. Wade. But let's let's talk specifically. Abbott's running for re-election. So he's telling voters that, oh, I'm going to protect you know, your parental rights and your religious freedoms. And we're going to get all of these sexually explicit LGBT uh, publications out. And, and Brandon, I think one of the things that I heard coming from some of the folks at Tallahassee was that seemed to be the key thing, that they are painting a picture of these books in a sexual sense. In other words, they are not using it as a means of identity or a means of you know, respecting a personhood. What they're doing is they're taking it to what I refer to as the X factor, you know, and we don't want kids learning about that because we're good Christians. Well, Texas is doing it. Virginia is doing it. You're finding it in Florida. Now we're finding out today in South Dakota, um, they're looking at another bill. Yesterday, the, uh, the House Committee pushed through that anti-trans sports bill it's going now to the House. The state Senate already uh, signed off on it. We expect Governor Noam to sign that damn thing. But now there's another bill in process. And, again, it's all screaming about, you know, parental rights. Brandon, if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit about that phrase, parental rights, because the white yeah. is using that to beat us up with. Yeah. Well, um, I, I really appreciate you laying it all out. And, you know, maybe it's for another podcast, another time, but I, I, you know, I could go all the way back to the election of Barack Obama and how that's brought us to today. But very specifically about the term parental rights, um, it's not an accident that we are in the parental rights frame right now. And it's not an accident, by the way, that when we're talking about the trans sports bans that happened last year and have bled over into this year, um, that they were all framed as fairness in women's sports. These are think tank produced uh, frames for all of the legislation that we're talking about. They come out of a group of folks. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole host of them. There's uh, national groups. There are state level groups that are a part of these think tanks that take bigoted ideas and figure out how to then market them to the public. And what I like to, what I, like to remind people is that they are built on confirmation bias, right? When we're talking about banning trans kids from sports, um, proponents of those bills will talk about things that sound reasonable if you don't do any digging underneath the surface, right? They're talking about, uh, you know, fundamental issues like fairness and equality and, and competition uh, and women's rights, and they are using words that, we agree with. Most reasonable people agree with. And because they're using them in these contexts, it becomes a sort of confirmation bias. Well, yeah, I guess I could understand that if 
X than Y, um, but they're not using them in good faith. They're perverting them beyond what is actually reasonable to most people. And when we start to scratch underneath the surface, we see, wait a minute, we're not talking about fairness and equality. We're actually talking about barring young people from having a place to belong after school. We're talking about middle schoolers not being able to play soccer with their friends. Suddenly, fairness and equality don't sound like I've been sold them. And the same is true with the, the conversation around parental rights. We wrap these bills up in parental rights. Parental rights is the name of the, the bill that's moving uh, that includes you know, banning people from talking about sexual orientation and gender identity here in Florida. And on the surface, we can all as reasonable people agree that parents should be a part of their kids' education. Parents should be an integral part of helping their kids get from you know, young childhood to adulthood and be productive members of society. Of course we all want that. But once we start to scratch underneath the marketing, underneath the right-wing think tank language, we see that what we're not talking about is parental rights. What we are talking about is censorship. What we are talking about is some parents' rights. We're not talking about the rights of LGBTQ parents in those classrooms. We're not talking about when, when we're having conversations about uh, you know, race and racism and injustice and discrimination, uh, when it's framed as critical race theory and, and parents should have the right to push back against that. We're not talking about black parents' rights in that setting. We're talking about some parents' rights to object to the rights of other people in society. And so, you know, I, I just want to bring people back to this understanding that we're not speaking the same language because the language is being manufactured by the people who are putting forward these very bigoted bills. And it's our responsibility to peel back the layers and shine sunlight on what's actually happening under the surface. Let me do a quick follow-up with I, you I on would... that because there's, there's something that occurred to me as you were saying that, and it's something that is kind of troublesome. Now, next week, one of my reporters uh, will be interviewing the new head of Gleason. And, of course, Gleason is the umbrella organization for the GSA. So this is going to bring me back to you personally, as you're one of the uh, heads of the Drew Project there in Florida, which assists the GSAs and assists LGBTQ students with scholarship money and important things that they need in their lives. Uh, so yeah. props to the Drew, the Drew Project. But let's talk about GSA for a minute, because based on what you just said about marketing and manufacturing, and based on what you just said a few minutes ago in answer to one of Rob's questions about the language of these bills, it does appear to me on the surface, okay, at face value, that should these things actually happen, a GSA would not be possible. Or if it was to occur that gay kids who are closeted or trans kids who have not established their full gender identity or non-binary status at home could find themselves in a situation of clear and present danger predicated on this legislation and predicated on these moves, my larger being concerned, they're trying to legislate the GSAs out of existence as well. That's a real fear. And I'm, and I'm glad you named that because there's a very real possibility that that's an impact of this bill. Um, and I want to drill down further 
because, you know, folks might be thinking, well, I didn't have a GSA when I was in school and I turned out just fine. Well, let me tell you the data that we know behind Gay Straight Alliance clubs in schools. I told you that LGBTQ young people are four times as likely as their peers to attempt suicide by the time they graduate high school. That means that we're losing LGBTQ young people at a much higher rate than their peers because they don't feel like they belong. They've been told that something is wrong with them. Well, as an antidote, gay straight alliance clubs in those schools, a presence of just somewhere to be yourself and feel affirmed cuts that suicide attempt rate in half. Gay straight alliance clubs in schools save lives. That's what people need to understand. And there is a very real risk that if bills like the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida pass, that the life of gay straight alliance clubs could be threatened, that these spaces that young people have to belong could be threatened. Um, And I get it. The term safe space has sort of been perverted by right-wing trolls online. Only, you know, wimps need safe spaces. Tough guys can handle the world the way it is. But safe spaces for queer youth, safe spaces especially for queer youth of color, are lifelines. Because the other places that people are safe aren't safe for people like us. When I was growing up, church was not a safe place for me to be. Home was not a safe place for me to be. The only safe space that I had were the classrooms where I had affirming teachers and, and classmates who understood me. So once again, we drill down to what is the actual impact of these bills? These bills could cost GSAs in the schools, which could ultimately cost LGBTQ young people their lives, and we should all take pause at that. Brandon, what can you give us an assessment on the likelihood of these three bills passing? Yeah, um, I want to tell you that we have the numbers and we're going to beat them all. But the truth is, the Florida legislature is virtually a supermajority for Republicans, um, and so it is up to the leadership. It's up to the governor to decide what a priority is and what it isn't. Um, you know, the governor gets to decide. Ultimately, he comes down and tells the Senate president and the, the House, um, House Speaker uh, which bills are of top priority. Uh, we believe that likely of the ones we've mentioned, um, you know, potentially the don't say gay or the expansion of parental rights, as it's being called, bill um, is, is most likely. That's the one that, you know, they've sort of latched onto to create a political battleground in schools. We also know that that bill has some questions around it from Republicans on these committees. There were a number of Republican members who supported the bill out of committee but raised some concerns, and our hope is that those concerns turn into resistance and those concerns turn into potentially amendments that could neutralize bad parts of this bill. Um, And then on top of that, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the governor's uh, signature piece of legislation, which is the Stop Woke Act. Uh, and that is probably most likely to pass and would have a chilling effect on conversations around race and and discrimination uh, and injustice in this country. So I think if you had to zero in on what's most likely to pass, the things that wage war on our classrooms are the things right now that are a lightning rod for GOP leadership. They saw how successful Glenn Youngkin was in Virginia running to tear apart our school system and they see it as a potential win here in Florida. So any, of, any number of these bills designed to turn classrooms into battlegrounds are a threat, I think, to get over the finish line. 
One tool that has been used in the past in different situations, uh, it came in big in Arizona, was big corporate um, getting involved and threatening a state with um, if they passed really discriminatory uh, legislation like that. Um, do yeah. you see anything like that happening, especially since Disney in particular is, you know, such a, a, a breadwinner for Florida? Well, let's be clear. We need our business partners to show up. Um, and it's, it's disturbing that, you know, we're three weeks into this process and they haven't made their voices heard yet. I would challenge all of my friends in the business space, all of the leaders in those space to show up because at some point you have to staff the businesses that you have headquartered in Florida. At some point, you have to have some people working a ticket counter or behind a turnstile. And if you've allowed a state to become so hostile toward some communities, you're going to run out of bodies um, to put behind the line. Um, but in terms of, you know, what's the likelihood or, or where are they at on this, um, you know, one of the things that surprises me, and we may see some movement on this, is that businesses haven't spoken out about the Stop Woke Act in particular. And I say that because the, the front portion of the bill actually would impact diversity and inclusion training in workplaces as well. So the state government would essentially make illegal any sort of training that makes someone feel, quote, discomfort based on their race or their sex or their national origin. So imagine for a moment that you go to a sexual harassment training at your Disney workplace and the person conducting the training says that men are more often perpetrators of sexual harassment and violence in the workplace. If you feel guilty as a man because it is men who most often perpetrate those acts against someone else, now you have a cause of action under the Florida Civil Rights Act to sue your employer for a civil rights infraction, for discrimination against you as a man. The same is true in schools, in local and state agencies. So that's one area where I'm surprised that businesses haven't pushed back because it would completely upend the way that we conduct diversity, equity, and inclusion training uh, in the state of Florida, in, in corporations, generally speaking. And then, of course, my hope is that we can get our corporate friends off the couch to support LGBTQ people in schools, to support women and their right to choose what happens to their own bodies. Uh, we desperately need the business community to show up and say, listen, you might have some moral quandary here. You might really, really want to be president in 2024, but at the end of the day, we have to run a business, and you are costing us money, you're costing us customers, you're costing us employees, and it's time for you to put the brakes on the culture wars for a minute and get a handle on what Floridians actually want you to be focused on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is kind of a next step tool, and, and I agree. I hope, I hope they hear this podcast. I hope, um, you know, we get their ear and um, somebody – in those positions takes um, action because you're right. It's like, it is detrimental. They're between a rock and a hard place. If they can't train people um, and then their lawsuits, they're going to get it from both sides. And they, it's a no win situation, which is why they've jumped in into it in the past. Well, we are almost out of time. Um, Brandon, first of all, thank you for being you. Thank you for what you do. 
you are a true warrior and um, just I, I don't know what we as a community would do without you. You are and you're you know, and I know you're going to be doing much, much more. This is not even, you know, the end of, in sight of, of what you're going to accomplish. But thank you for doing that, and especially thank you for showing up here today and um, filling us in. We really appreciate it. Um, Brody, I want to thank you for what you do in terms of being the editor of the L.A. Blade as well as the producer here, um, but getting new, fresh information out to our community and letting everybody know what's going on. And hopefully everything that, that we're talking about today does get to the right ears. Um, I would encourage our listeners to get involved, um, talk to people, you know, push this up the ladders. This is not just a Florida issue. It's an everywhere issue. And um, we, we, we have to stop it. We have to stop it. There are lives that are at risk. Um, and um, it's important that we save them. Um, you know, the oppression is, is bad, and the momentum that this could cause uh, is, is unfathomable, and we, we have to get ahead of it. Um, that is pretty much it for the time we have today. Brandon, any last words to say goodbye to our listeners? Well, I just want to thank you both. Thank you, Brody. Thank you, Rob, for bringing me on for always keeping a, a spotlight on these issues. Thank you to folks who are tuning in. And I would encourage you, if you're fired up about what's happening in the state of Florida, you can check us out at eqfl.org. We've got ways you can take action on there, send notes to lawmakers. We've gotten emails all the way from other countries in the last week. From Canada, we got some notes headed to the governor's desk. So please join us in that fight. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis wants to run for president. And that means that some of these horrible policies could be exported to a presidential ticket near you. So our best way of pushing back is to defeat him here in Florida in 2022 and put the brakes on his presidential ambition. So I just really appreciate you bringing me on. Encourage everyone to get involved, uh, and let's keep having the conversation. Yes, let's, let's definitely. And speaking of the conversation, we will be back with another conversation next week, uh, same place, same time. Um, check us out. It is going to be a really incredible, fascinating show. Um, I have no idea what it is, but that's what we deliver. So I can guarantee you that that is what you will experience. So for those of us from Rated LGBT Radio, thank you. Tell your friends to subscribe, and we will be talking to you again next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio!